Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and settle. Grab something wet and cool and relax. Tonight, ah, tonight, we've got a bit of an experiment tonight. I'll tell you more of that anon. We had a time here in the nook last week. Not in Ray Tales to Terrify. No, no. Not that. That was excellent. I loved that take on Andaro and the day after Kong. It's, well, it's my favorite film, perhaps, of all time. Or the 1933 effort, of course. But just after you left, with my crowing about the nook being the coolest place in the multiverse, still sounding in your ears, no doubt, that evening, capping one of the hottest days in Chicago history, the air conditioning went out. When we finally contacted the building's keeper of the keys, we were told it doubtlessly went out because of the heat. Ah, why had I not thought of that? But isn't it during times of heat, I asked, that air conditioners are expected to operate optimally? Hmm? It was doubtlessly out because of the heat, the keeper of the keys said. Ah, it is the unit, then, that is inadequate to the needs of the nook, I ventured. It was doubtlessly out because of the heat, the keeper of the keys said. Ah, I said, how could I have been so foolish? Well, luckily, you were on your ways home, in cabs, as I recall, as I suggested, before the calamity, and you, oh, you, you had a wonderfully cool night, yes? Hmm. But I digress, of course. 
Even imaginary people such as myself have to vent from time to time. So settle, sip, and listen. First, let me help spread the word about a fellow podcaster, a fellow in the sense that he podcasts. Otherwise, Matthew Sanborn Smith is unique, and his lovely, strange, and athletically voiced cast, called Beware the Hairy Mango, is something that must be heard to be understood. Matthew is, well, Matthew... Matthew's an old chum from the Starship Sofa. He was a frequent contributor of vocal expertise and of constant pimping for the site and for the show. We had a little promo from him a few weeks ago, if you remember. Uh, and if you enjoy, say, the odd and wifty work of Martin Munt, you might like Matthew. Matthew is brief Marty on Fast Forward. Stop by BewareTheHairyMango.com. That's, of course, all one word. Click on any given episode. They're short. They're breathless. They're clever. Try uh, try episode 133. It's called On a Clear J. Also, we still need narrators, and you know what to do. Record something you like and which you think will like, and send it to tales to terrify at gmail.com. I give us about five or so minutes of that thing. Subject line it, narrator, audition, or something of that ilk. Something to tell us you are a potential reader of things dark and scary, and that you want to be heard round the world. Also, Ten Terrifying Minutes was spoken aloud here in the Nook for the first time last week. If you're a writer and want to tweak some reader's fancy somewhere in the world with ten minutes of your latest effort, record it. Send it our way. Tales to Terrify at gmail.com. Yes, it's the same one. And make sure your recordings are clean. Need no edits. And thanks. And don't forget, if you like the show, if you like snuggling here weekly with me, Lawrence Santoro, with others, with Mahler, the ink black cat of the nook, you might want to stop by our website, http colon slash slash tales to terrify dot com slash and click on the contribute button. We may need a new air conditioner. And of course, I am just kidding. We derive no benefit here, either fiscally or thermally from your pounds, euros, dollars or whatever. And, yes, one more thing before story time. This Halloween, October 31st, we'll see the publication of Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. Keep your eyes and ears open. We'll have lots more to say on this in the future. And now, the experiment. Two stories tonight, diametric opposites. One is an enigmatic, poetic reconfiguring of a tale we're all familiar with. The other is a linear but still enigmatic tale of a man in danger, a pursuit through a nightmare dreamscape. Both feature children in peril. Both are narrated by the same reader. Our first tale is by Margot Lanigan, and please... Let me warn you, this story contains explicit sexual imagery. So, you children among us here in the nook, 
Go out in the porch, play with the night until we call you back, okay? Margot is an Australian writer of short stories, novels, and young adult fiction. Until fairly recently, many of her books were published only in Australia. Recently, however, her work has attracted worldwide attention. Her story collection, Black Juice, won two World Fantasy Awards and a 2006 Prince Honor Award. It was published in Australia by Allen and Unwin, in the United Kingdom by Gollins in 2004, and in North America by Harper Collins in 2005. Black Juice includes the much-anthologized tale Singing My Sister Down, which was nominated for both the Hugo and Nebula Awards. Margot is an alumna of the Clarion West Writers' Workshop in 1999, and in 2011, she returned there as a teacher. More about her later. But here is Margot Lanigan's The Goozle by Margot Lanigan. There, said Grinnan as we cleared the trees. Now, you keep your counsel, Hanny boy. Why, that is the mudwife's house, I thought. Dread thudded in me. Since two days ago among the older trees when I knew we were in my father's forest, I had feared this. The house looked just as it did in my memory. The crumbling, glittery yellow walls, the dreadful roof sealed with drippy white mud. My tongue rubbed the roof of my mouth just looking. It is crisp as wafer biscuit on the outside, that mud. You bite through to a sweetish sand inside. You are frightened it will choke you, but you cannot stop eating. The mudwife might be dead. I thought, hopefully. So many are dead, after all, of the black. But then came a convulsion in the house. A face passed the window hole, and there she was at the door. Same squat body with a big face snarling above. Same clothing, even. After all these years, the dress trying for bluishness and the pinafore for brown through all the dirt. She looked just as strong. However much bigger I'd grown, it took all my strength just to hold my bowels together. Don't come a step nearer! She held a red firebanger in her hand, but it was so dusty. If I had not known her, I'd have laughed. Madam, I pray you, said Grinnin. We are clean as clean. There is not a speck on us, not a blister. Humble travellers in need only of a pig hut or a chicken shed to shelter the night. Touch my stock and I'll have you, she says to all his smoothness. I'll roast your head in a pot. I tugged Grinnin's sleeve. It was all too sudden. One moment walking, wondering... The next on the doorstep with the witch right there, talking heads in pots. We have pretties to trade, said Grinnan. You can put your pretties up your point hole where they belong. We have all the news of long travel. Are you not at all curious about the world and its woes? Why would I live here, Tuffet Head? And she went inside, slammed her door, and banged the shutter across her window. She is softening, said Grinnan. She is curious. She can't help herself. I don't think so. You watch me. Get us a fire going, boy. There, on that bit of bare ground. She will come and throw her bunger on it. She'll blind us and then... Just make and shut. I tell you, this one is as good as married to me. I have her heart in my hand like a rabbit kitten. I was sure he was mistaken. But I went too, because fire meant food, and just the sight of the house had made me hungry. While I fed the fire its kindling, I dug up a little stone from the flattened ground and sucked the dirt off it. Grinnan had made a smelly soup, salt fish it had in it, and sea celery, and the yellow spice. When the smell was strong, the door whumped open and there she was again, 
Oh, she was so like in my dreams, with her suddenness and her ugly intentions that you can't guess. But it was me and Grinnin this time, not me and Kirtle. Grinnin was big and smart, and he had his own purposes. I knew there was no magic in the world, just trickery on the innocent. Grinnin would never let anyone else trick me. He wanted that privilege all for himself. Take your smelly smells from my garden this instant, the mudwife shouted. Grinnin bowed as if she'd greeted him most civilly. Madam, if you'd join us, there's plenty of this lovely bull best for you as well. I had not touched my lips to such mess. What kind of foreign muck? Even I could hear the longing in her voice. That was she was trying to shout down. There before her he ladled out a bowlful, yellow, splashy, full of delicious lumps. Very humbly. He does humbleness well when he needs to, for such a big man. He took it to her. When she recoiled, he placed it on the little table by the door, the one that I ran against in my clumsiness when escaping. So hard I still sometimes feel the bruise in my rib. I remember I knocked it skittering out the door, and I flung it back, meaning to trip up the mudwife. But instead I tripped up Kirtle, and the wife came out and plucked her up and bellowed after me, and kicked the table onto the path, and ran out herself with Kirtle like a tortoise swimming from her fist, and kicked the table aside again. Bang went the cottage door. Grinnin came laughing quietly back to me. She is ours. Once they've at your food, Hanny, you're free to eat theirs. Fish and onion pie tonight, I'd say. Ugh. Jealous, are we? Don't like old Grinnin supping at other pots, hmm? It's not that. I glared at his laughing face. She's so ugly, that's all. So old. I don't know how you can even think of... Well... I am no primrose myself, golden boy, he says, and I am grateful for any flower that lets me pluck her. I was not old and desperate enough to laugh at that joke. I pushed his soup bowl at him. Ah, bullabess, he said to the steam, food of gods and seducers. When the mudwife let us in, I looked straight to the corner, and the cage was still there. It had been repaired in places, with fresh plaited withes, but it was still of the same pattern. Now there was an animal in it, but the cottage was so dim, a very thin cat, maybe, or a ferret. It rippled slowly around its borders and flashed little eyes at us and smelled as if its own piss were combed through its fur for pomade. I never smelled that bad when I lived in that cage. I ate well, I remember. I fattened. She took away my leavings in a little cup on a little dish, but there was still plenty of me left so that when Kirtle freed me, I lumbered away. As soon as I was out of sight of the mud house, I stopped in the forest and just stood there, blowing from the effort of propelling myself, after all those weeks of sloth, so that Grinnin, when he first saw me, said, Here's a jubbly one. Here's a cheesecake. Wherever did you get the makings of those round cheeks? And he fell on me like a starving man on a roasted mutton leg. Before too long he had used me thin again, and thin I stayed thereafter. He was busy at work on the mudwife now. Oh my, what an array of herbs. You must be a very knowledgeable woman. And hasn't she a lot of pots, Hansel? A pot for every occasion, I think. Oh yes, I nearly said, including head-boiling, remember? Well, you are very comfortably set up here indeed, madam. He looked about him as if he'd found himself inside some kind of enchanted palace, instead of a stinking hovel with a witch in the middle of it. Now, I'm sure you told me your name. I did not. 
Why names not for such as you to know? Her mouth was all pruny, and she strutted about and banged things and shot him sharp looks. But I'd seen it. We were in here, weren't we? We'd made it this far. Ah, a guessing game, said Grinnan delightedly. Now, you'd have a good strong name, I'm sure. Bruder, maybe, or Gert, or else something fiery and passionate, such as Rosa Vita, eh? He can afford to play her a while. If the worst comes to the worst, he has the liquor, after all. The liquor has worked on me when nothing else would, when I've been ready to run, to some town's wilds where I could hide, to such as that farm wife with a worried face, who beat off Grinnan with a broom. The liquor had softened me and made me sleepy, made me give in to the old bugger's blandishments. Next day it had stopped me thinking with its head pain, further than to obey Grinnan's grunts and gestures. How does yours like it, said Gadfly's red-haired boy viciously. I've heard him call you honey, like a girl-wife. Does he do you like a girl, face to face and lots of kissing? Like your boy bits, which they are so small, ain't even there, so squashed and ground in. He calls me Hanny, because Hanny is my name. Hansel. Honey is your name, eh, said the black boy. A boy of black skin from naturalness, not of illness. After your honey hair. Which they commenced patting and pulling, and then held me down and chopped all away with Gadfly's good knife. When Grinnan saw me, he went pale, but I'm pretty sure he was trying to cut some kind of deal with Gadfly to swap me for the red hair. With the skin like milk, like freckled milk, he said. So the only thing it changed, he did not come after me for several nights, until the hair had settled and I did not give off such an air of humiliation. Then he whispered, you were quite handsome under that thatch, weren't you? All along. And things were bad as ever, and the next day he tidied off the straggliest strands, as I sat on a stump with my poink hole thumping, and the other boys idled this way and that, watching, warping their faces at each other and snorting. The first time Grinnan did me, I could imagine that it didn't happen. I thought, I had that big dump full of so much nervous earth and stones, and some of them must have had sharp corners and cut me as I passed them, and the throbbing of the cuts gave me the dream that the old man had done that to me, because I was so fearful, you know, frightened of everything, coming straight from the mudwife, and I put fear and pain together and made it up in my sleep. The first time I could trick myself, because it was so terrible and mortifying a thing, it could not be real. It could not. I have watched Grinnell a long time now, in success and failure, in private and on show. At first I thought he was too smart for me, that I was trapped by his cleverness. And this is true, but I have seen others laugh at him, or walk away from his efforts easily, shaking their heads. Others are cleverer. What he does to me, he waits till I am weak, half asleep he waits till. I never have much fight in me, but dozing off I have even less. Then what he does, it's so simple I'm ashamed, he bears the flesh of my back, he strokes my back as if that is all he is going to do. He goes straight to the very oldest memory I have, which, me having never told him, how does he know it? Of being sickly, of my first mother bringing me through the night, singing and stroking my back, the oldest and safest piece of my mind, and he puts me there so that I am sodden with sweetness and longing, and nearly being back to a baby. And then he proceeds. It often hurts, it mostly hurts. I often weep. But there is a kind of bargain goes on between us, you see. I pay for the first part with the second. 
The price of the journey to that safe, sweet, sodden place is being spiked in the arse and dragged kicking and biting my blanket back to the real and dangerous one. Show me your boy thing, the mudwife would say. Put it through the bars. I won't. Why not? You will bite it off. You will cut it off with one of your knives. You will chop it off with your axe. Put it out. I will do no such thing. I only want to wash it. Wash it when Kirtle is awake, if you so want me clean. It will be nice, I promise you. I will give you a nice feeling, so warm, so wet. You'll feel good. But when I put it out, she exclaimed, What am I supposed to do with that? Wash it, like you said. There's not enough of it even to wash. How would one even get that little pipette dirty? I put it away, little shred, little scrap I was ashamed of. And she flung around the room a while, and then she sat, her face all red cracks in the last little light of the banked-up fire. I'm going to have to keep you forever, she said, for years before you're any use to me, and you're expensive. You eat like a pig. I should just cook you up now and enjoy you while you're tender. I was all wounded pride and stupid. I didn't know what she was talking about. I can do anything my sister can if you just let me out of this cage. I'm a better woodchopper. Woodchopper? she said disgustedly, as if I needed a woodchopper. And she went to the door and took the axe off the wall there and tested the edge with one of her horny fingertips and looked at me in a very thoughtful way I did not much like. Sometimes he speaks as he strokes. My hanny, he says, very gentle and loving like my mother. My goozle, my gosling, sweet as apple, salt as sea. And it feels as if we are united in yearning for my mother and her touch and voice. She cannot have gone forever, can she, if I can remember this feeling so clearly. But, ah, to get back to her, so much would have to be undone. So much would have to unhappen. All of Grinnin's and my wanderings, all the witch time, all the time of our second mother, that last night of our first mother, our real mother, and her awful writhing and the noises and our father begging and Kirtle weeping and needing to be taken away, that would have to become a nightmare from which my father would shake me awake with the news that the baby had come out, just as Kirtle and I did, just as easily, and our mother would rise from her bed with the baby, we would all rise into the baby's first morning and begin. It was very deep in the night. I have done my best to be invisible, to make no noise, but now the mudwife pants. He is not asleep. Of course he's asleep. Listen to his breathing. I do the asleep breathing. Come, says Grinnan. I'm done with these, bounteous as they are. I want to go below. He had his ardent voice on now. He makes you think he is barely in control of himself, and somehow that makes you, somehow that flatters you enough to let him do what he wants. After some uffing and puffing, No, she says, very firm, and there's a slap. I want that boy out of here. What, wake him so he can go and listen at the window? Get him out, she says. Send him beyond the pigs and tell him to stay. You're a nuisance, he says. A sexy nuisance. Look at this. I'm all misshapen, and you want me herding children. You do it, she says, rearranging her clothing, or you'll stay that shape. So he comes to me, and I affect to be woken up and to resist being hauled out of the door. But really, it's a relief, of course. I don't want to hear or see or know. None of that stuff I understand. Why people want to sweat and pant and poke bits of themselves into each other. Why anyone would want to do more than hold each other for the comfort and stroke each other's back. Moonlight. Pigs like slabs of moon, 
like long, fat fruit fallen off a moon vine. The trees tall and brainy all around and above, they never sweat and pork. The most they do is sway in a breeze, or crash to the ground to make useful wood. The damp smell of night forest. My friends in the firmament, telling me where I am. Two and a half days north of the ford with a knotty rope. Four and a half days north and a bit west of Devilstown, which Grinnan called it because someone made off in the night with all the spoils we'd made off with the night before. I'd thought we were the only ones not black in their beds, he'd stormed on the road. They must have come very quiet, I said. They must have been accomplished thieves. They must have been sprites or devils, he spat, but I didn't hear them with my ears. We were seven and a half days north, and very, very west of Gadfly's camp, where we had, as Grinnan put it, tried the cooperative life for a while. But those boys, they were a gang of no goods, Grinnan says now. Whatever Dealey had tried to make for our freckled milk, they laughed him off, and Grinnan could not stand it there having been laughed at. He took me away before dawn one morning, and when we stopped by a stream in the first light, he showed me the brass candlesticks that Gadfly had kept in a sack and been so proud of. And what'll you use those for, I said foolishly, for we had managed up until then with the moon and the stars and our own wee fire. I did not take them to use them, Hannypot, he said with glee. I took them because he loved and polished them so, and he flung them into the stream, and I gasped, and Grinnan laughed to hear me gasp, at the sight of them cutting through the foam and then gone, into the dark, cold, irretrievable. Anyway, it was new for me still, there beyond the mudwife's pigs, this knowing where we were, though I had lost count of the days since Ard Blathen, when it had come to me how Grinnan looked up to find his way, not down amongst a million tree roots that all looked the same, amongst twenty million grass stalks, amongst twenty million million stones or sand grains. It was even newer how the star pattern and the moon movements had steadied out of their meaningless whirling and begun to tell me whereabouts I was in the wide world. All my life I had been stupid, trying to mark things around me on the ground, leaving myself trails to get home by because every tree looked the same to me, every knoll and declivity, when all the time the directions were hammered hard into their system up there, pointing and changing but never completely changing. So, if we came at the cottage from this angle, whereas Kirtle and I came from the front, that means... But Kirtle and I wondered so many days, didn't we? I filled my stomach with earths, but Kirtle was piteous weeping all the way, so hungry. She would not touch the earth. She watched me eating it and wept. I remember I told her, No wonder you're thirsty. Look how much water you're wasting on those tears. She had brown hair, I remember. I remembered her pushing it out of her eyes so that she could see to sweep in the dark cottage. The cottage where the mudwife's voice is rising like a saw through wood. The house stands glittering and the sound comes out of it. My mouth waters. They wouldn't hear me over that noise, would they? I creep in past the pigs to where the blobby roof edge comes low. I break off a blob bigger than my hand. The wooden shingle it was holding slides off and my other hand catches it soundlessly and leans it against the house. The mudwife howls. Something is knocked over in there. She howls again and Grinnan is grunting with the effort of something. I run away from all those noises, the white mud in my hand like a hunk of cake. I run back to the trees where Grinnan told me to stay, where the woman's howls are like mouse squeaks and I can't hear Grinnan, and I sit between two high roots and I bite in. Once I've eaten the mud, I'm ready to sleep. I try dozing, but it's not comfortable among the roots there, and there's still noise from the cottage. Now it's Grinnan working himself up, calling up all the things he calls me, 
all the insults. You love it, he says with such deep disgust. You filthy, filthy cunt. And she owes below, not at all like me, but as if she really does love it. I lie quiet, thinking, is it true that she loves it, that I do? And if it's true, how is it that Grinnan knows, but I don't? She makes noise. She agrees with whatever he says. Harder, harder, she says. Bang me till I burst. Harder. On and on they go until I give up waiting. They will never finish. I get up and go around the pigsty and behind the chicken house. There is a poor field there, pumpkins gone wild in it, blackberry bushes foaming dark around the edges. At least the earth might be softer here. If I pile up enough of this floppy vine, if I gather enough pumpkins around me, and then I am holding not a pale baby pumpkin in my hand, but a pale baby skull. Grinnan and the mudwife bellow together in the house, and something else crashes broken. The skull is the colour of white mud, but hard, inedible, although when I turn it in the moonlight I find tooth marks where someone has tried. The shouts go up high, the witch is loud, Grinnan's whimpering. I grab up a handful of earth to eat, but a bone comes with it, long, white, dry. I let the earth fall away from it. I crouch there looking at the skull and the bone, as those two finish themselves off in the cottage. They will sleep now, but I'm not sleepy any more. The stars in their maps are nailed to the inside of my skull. My head is filled with dark clarity. When I am sure they are asleep, I scoop up a mouthful of earth and start digging. Let me go and get the mud wife, our father murmured, just for this once. I've done it twice and I'll do it again. Don't you bring that woman here. Our mother's voice was all constricted, as if the baby were trying to come her throat, not out her nethers. But it's not like the others, he said, desperate after the following pain. They say she knows all about children, delivers them all the time. Delivers them? She eats them, said our mother. It's not just this one. I've two others might catch her eye while I feed and doze. I'd rather die than have her near my house, that filthy hag. And so die she did. And our new brother or sister died as well, still inside her. We didn't know, whichever it was. Will it be another little curtle child? Our father had asked us bright-eyed by the fire at night, or another baby woodcutter like our hands. It had seemed so important to know. Even when the baby was dead, I wanted to know. But the whole reason, our father sobbed, is that it could not come out for us to see, which had shamed me quiet. And then later, going into the blackened towns where the only way you could tell a man from a woman was by the style of a cap or a hair ribbon draggling into the dirt beneath them, or a rotted pinafore, or worst, by the amount of shrunken scrag between an unclothed person's legs. Why, then I could see how small a thing it was not to know the little one's sex. I could see that it was not important at all. When I wake up, they are at it again with their sexing. My teeth are stuck to the insides of my cheeks and lips by two ridges of earth. I have to break the dirt away with my finger. What was I thinking last night? I sit up. The bones are in a pile beside me. The skulls are in a separate pile. For counting, I remember. What I thought was, where did she find all these children? Kirtle and I walked for days, I'm sure. There was nothing in the world but trees and owls and foxes and that one deer. Kirtle was afraid of bats at night, but I never saw even one. And we never saw people, which is what we were looking for, which is why we were so unwise when we came upon the mudwife's house. But what am I going to do? What was I planning, piling these up? I thought I was only looking for all Kirtle's bits, but then another skull turned up and I thought, well, maybe this one is more Kirtle's size, and then skull after skull. 
I dug on, crunching earth and drooling and breathing through my nose, and the bones seemed to rise out of the earth at me, seeking out the moon the way a tree reaches for the light, pushing up thinly among the other trees until it finds light enough to spread into, seeking out me, as if they were thinking, here, finally, is someone who can do something for us. I picked up the nearest skull. Which of these is my sister's? Even if there were just a way to tell girl skulls from boys, is hers even here? Maybe she's still buried under the blackberries where I couldn't go for thorns. Now I have a skull in either hand, like someone at market weighing one cabbage against another, and a thought comes to me, something is different. Listen. The pigs. The mudwife. Her noise is very like the pigs. There is no rhythm to them. They are random grunting and gasping, and I... Silently I replaced the skulls on the pile. I haven't heard grinning this morning. Not a word, not a groan, just the woman, the woman and the pigs. The sunshine shows the cottage as the hovel it is, its saggy sides propped, its sloppy roofing patched with mud splats simply thrown from the ground. The back door stands wide, and I creep up and stand right next to it, my back to the wall. Wet slaps and stirring sound inside. The mudwife grunts. She sounds muffled, desperate. Has he tied her up? Is he strangling her? There's not a gasp or word from him. That thing in the cage gives off a noise, though, a kind of low baying. It never stops to breathe. There is a strong smell of shit. Dawn is warming everything up. Flies zoom in and out the doorway. I press myself to the wall. There is a dip in the doorstep. Were I brave enough to walk in, that's where I'd put my foot. And right at that place appears a drop of blood running from inside. It slides into the dip, pauses modestly at being seen, then shyly hurries across the step and dives into hiding in the weeds below. How long do I stand there, looking out over the pigsty and the chicken house to the forest, wishing I were there among the trees instead of here, clamped to the house wall like one of those gargoyles on the monk's house in Devil's Town, with each sound opening a new pocket of fear in my bowels? A fly flies into my gaping mouth and out again. A pebble in the wall digs a little chink in the back of my head and pressed so hard there. Finally, I have to know. I have to take one look before I run, otherwise I'll dream all the possibilities for nights to come. She's not a witch. She can't spell me back. I'm thin now and nimble. I can easily get away from her. So I loosen my head and the rest of me from the wall. I bend one knee and straighten the other, pushing my big head, my popping eyes around the doorpost. I only meant to glimpse and run. So ready am I for the running, I tip outward, even when I see there's no need. I put out my foot to catch myself, and I stare. She has her back to me, her bare, dirty white back, her baggy arse and thighs. If she weren't doing what she's doing, that would be horror enough. How everything is wet and withered and hung with hair. How everything shakes. Grinnan is dead on the table. She has opened his legs wide and eaten a hole in him, in through his soft parts. She has pulled all his innards out onto the floor, and her bare bloody feet are trampling the shit out of them. Her bare shaking legs are trying to brace themselves on the slippery carpet of them. I can smell the salt fish in the shit. I can smell the yellow spice. That devilish moan. Up and down it wavers, somewhere between purr and battle yell. I thought it was me, but it's the shadow in the cage, curling over and over itself like a ruffle of black water, its eyes fixed on the mess, hungry, 
hungry. The witch pulls her head out of Grinnan for air. Her head and shoulders are shiny red. Her soaked hair drips. Her purple-brown nipples point down into two hanging rubies. She snatches some air between her red teeth and plunges in again, her head inside Grinnan like the bulge of a dead baby, but higher, forcing higher, pummeling up inside him, fighting to be unborn. In my travels I have seen many wrongnesses done, and heard many others told off with laughter or with awe around a fire. I have come upon horrors of all kinds, for these are horrible times, but never has a thing been laid out so obvious and ongoing in its evil before my eyes, and under my nose, and with the flies feasting even as it happens, and never has the means to end it hung so clearly in front of me as it hangs now, on the wall, in the smile of the mudwife's axe edge, fine as the finest nail paring, bright as the dawn sky, the only clean thing in this foul cottage. I reached my father's house late in the afternoon. How I knew the way, when years ago you could put me twenty paces into the trees and I'd wander lost all day, I don't know. It just came to me. All the loops I took, all the mistakes I made, all laid themselves down in their places on the world, and I took the right way past them and came here straight, one sack on my back, the other in my arms. When I dreamed of this house it was big and full of comforts. It hummed with safety. A spirit of my mother lit it from inside like a sacred candle. Kirtle was always here, running out to greet me, all delight. Now I can see the poor place for what it is. A plague ruin, like so many that Grinnan and I have found and plundered. And tiny, not even as big as the witch's cottage. It sits in its weedy quiet and the forest chirps around it. The only thing remarkable about it is that I am the first here. No one has touched the place. I note it on my star map. There is safety here, a safety of a distance greater than most robbers will venture. A blackened boy child sits on the step, his head against the doorpost as if only very tired. Inside a second child lies in a cradle. My father and second mother are in their bed, side by side, just like that lord and lady on the stone tomb in Ardblathen, only not so neatly carved or richly dressed. Everything else is exactly the same as Kirtle and I left it. So sparse and spare. There's nothing of value here. Grinnan would be angry. Burn those bodies and bed. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ed's boy, he'd say. We'll take their rotten roof if that's all they have. But Grennan is not here, is he? I say to the boy on the step, carrying the matter cat past him. Grennan is in the ground with his lady love, under the pumpkins, and with a great big pumpkin inside him, too, and Mrs. Pumpkinhead in his arms so that they can sex there underground forever. I take a stick and mark out the graves. Father, second mother, brother, sister, and a last big one for the two sacks of kirtle bones. There's plenty of time before sundown, and the moon is bright these nights. Don't I know it? I can work all night if I have to. I'm strong enough, and full enough still of disgust. I will dig and dig until this is done. I tear off my shirt. I spit in my hands and rub them together. The mattock bites into the earth. This is a disturbing piece for so many reasons. First, children in sexual peril always put us off, and... In particular, in this case, I think, because Margot uses the elements that figure in a classic tale we've all embraced since our own childhoods, and then brings us face to face with the mentioned but rarely examined darkest element of that tale. And it's one thing to know Hansel and Gretel face being eaten by the witch. It is another thing entirely to stare that bit of private cannibalism in the bloody face. Okay, kids, you can come back now. Margot's short story collection, White Time, originally published in Australia in 2000 by Allen and Unwin, was published in North America in 2006 by HarperCollins. White Time received recognition as a 2007 best book for young adults from the American Library Association. Her novel, Tender Morsels, was a 2008 Shirley Jackson Award finalist, a Prince Honor Award winner in 2009, and secured her the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. She lives in New South Wales, Australia. And again, thank you for this, Margot. We'd love to have some more from you. Tonight's second tale in our little experiment is by Mark Morris. Mark's short stories, novellas, articles, and reviews have appeared in a wide variety of anthologies and magazines. He became a full-time writer in 1988 on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, and a year later saw the release of his first novel, Toady. He's since published 16 novels, among which are Stitch, The Immaculate, The Secret of Anatomy, The Deluge, 
and several books in the popular Doctor Who range. Here is... What Nature Abhors by Mark Morris When Mitra opened his eyes, the train was empty, though he had thought it was the jolt of the brakes that had woken him. He stood up, the low-level anxiety of disorientation already beginning to grind in his belly. The carriage was old and grimy, and smelled musty, as if each threadbare seat had absorbed too much sweat over too many years. The upholstery and stained carpet was predominantly grey, with overlapping flecks in two shades of bilious green that jittered like TV interference on the periphery of his vision. Outside the window, the stone walls of the station building looked smoke-blackened, except for pale oblongs where the station's nameplates had been removed, probably by vandals. As far as Meacher could see, it was not only the train that was deserted, but the platform too, and so profoundly, it seemed to him, that he suppressed the urge to call out, oddly fearful of how intrusive, or worse, insignificant, his voice might sound in the enveloping silence. Stepping into the aisle, he automatically reached towards the luggage rack above his head, but found it empty. Had he had a bag, or even a jacket, at the outset of his journey, it would have been unusual for him to have travelled with neither, but his brain felt so dulled by fatigue that he honestly couldn't remember. He sat down again, intimidated by solitude and by his own aberrant memory. He had a notion that the merest glimpse of a guard, or another passenger, or perhaps even the incomprehensible blare of a station announcer's voice, would be all that he would need to restore his sense of himself and his surroundings. However, when he realised, ten minutes later, that he was actually holding his breath in anticipation of a hint of life besides his own, he decided he could be passive no longer. He stood up with a decisiveness that was for no one's benefit but his, and lurched along the length of the carriage, his arms pumping like a cross-country skiers as he yanked at the seats to maintain his momentum. On the platform, he paused only briefly, so that he would not have to consciously acknowledge the absence of life. The exit sign caused his spirits to flare with a disproportionate fierceness, if only because, albeit impersonal, it was a form of communication, and hinted at more to come. He stumped through the arch beneath the sign and found himself in a ticket office, containing back-to-back -back rows of red metal seats and an unmanned ticket window. From above this, too, a nameplate had been removed, and with such care that Meacher wondered whether the place was understaffed because it was on the verge of closure. The station was certainly small enough for this theory to be feasible, or at least appeared too inconsequential to have been granted a car park, because a further exit door led down a flight of stone steps, and thence to what appeared to be a town centre side street. Even out here there was no indication of life, though Meacher felt optimistic that he would encounter some sooner rather than later. There were signs of human occupation, the stink of stale urine as he descended the steps, discarded confectionery wrappers and food cartons emblazoned with comfortingly iconic logos, McDonald's, Kit Kat, KFC. On the far side of a pedestrian crossing, a chalked sign in a pub window promised Big Screen Sky Sports. Meacher might have ventured inside to freshen his dry mouth with something sweet and fizzy if the pub's wooden doors, so hefty that they put him in mind of a dungeon, had not been firmly shut. The pub's neighbours were equally inaccessible. Indeed, a grubby jeweller's and a shop which contained second-hand musical instruments had reinforced their unwillingness to attract trade via the employment of metal shutters. Meacher wondered what time it was. If the shops were closed and the pub not yet open, he guessed it must be somewhere between 6 and 7 p.m. Looking up afforded him no clue, because the greyness between the rooftops more closely resembled a thick net stretched between the buildings than a portion of sky. He started to walk, though he had no real idea in which direction the town centre lay. 
The silence was so unnerving that even the tiny crackle of grit beneath his soles made him wince. The narrow streets with their shuttered storefronts all looked the same, and after a while he began to wonder whether he was walking in circles. His mind felt oddly inactive, as though unable to form thoughts of any substance. Every so often he didn't so much stop to listen as stumble to a halt, as if he was a machine that periodically needed to conserve its energy to recharge. Unless his senses were as faulty as his memory, it seemed he was utterly alone. There was neither the distant rumble of traffic, nor even the faintest trill of birdsong. Perhaps it was Sunday, and everything was shut. The thought was less a comfort and more an attempt to prevent his sense of disquiet escalating into fear. In truth, he knew that no town centre was ever this devoid of life. Something had happened here, probably while he'd been asleep on the train. The town had been abandoned or evacuated for some reason, and somehow he had been overlooked. Blundering to yet another halt, he nervously sniffed the air. The only reason he could think of for such a wide-scale evacuation was the presence of some kind of severe physical threat. Was the place about to be bombed by terrorists, or could the attack already be underway? Perhaps he was wandering around, blithely inhaling toxic fumes. Perhaps germ warfare had come to Middle England, and he was gulping down anthrax spores or worse. Or perhaps, he thought, as he examined his skin, and tried to convince himself that the nausea and breathlessness he was feeling were psychosomatic, the attack had already happened. Perhaps a nuclear bomb had been dropped close by and the town's population had been evacuated to protect them from the approaching cloud of radioactive dust. There were flaws in his thinking, he knew that. But one thing was certain, he had to get to a phone, had to find out what was going on. He started to run, telling himself it was only the stress that was making his lungs hurt and his legs feel leaden. But if so, what was it that was affecting his memory? He couldn't even remember getting on the train, never mind where he had been going or for what reason. As if his desperation for answers had made it happen, he suddenly emerged from the stultifying maze of drab streets full of shuttered buildings and found himself in a pedestrianised precinct leading to what appeared to be a central square. There were comfortingly familiar chain stores here, Woolworth, Gap, HMV, though they seemed to be more impoverished versions than the one he was used to seeing back home. Home? Where was that? The renewed surge of panic that accompanied his dawning realisation that he knew almost nothing about himself was so overwhelming that he stumbled and almost fell as his strength drained out of him. He staggered up to a Miss Selfridge's and put an outspread palm on the display window to steady himself. His head was pounding, his body slick with sweat, and he was finding it difficult to breathe. His mind, however, was in overdrive. He thought of the air teeming with germs and chemicals, thought of toxins rushing through his body, disrupting and destroying it. He expected to start coughing up blood at any moment, expected blisters to erupt on his skin. He waited for the first searing pain in his gut or head, and hoped that when it came it would be intense enough to render him quickly unconscious. He'd rather pass out and die unknowing than writhe in agony as his innards dissolved into soup. He was heartened to discover, however, that several minutes later, rather than deteriorating, his condition had actually improved. He felt well enough, at least, to push himself away from the windows and stand unaided. He even managed a wry grin. Panic attack, he thought. Not gas attack. Now pull yourself together, Meacher. It was at this point that he noticed that all the mannequins in the closed shop window had plastic bags over their heads. At first he thought it was some kind of avant-garde display, thought that the store was simply using shock tactics to grab attention. If so, he hoped it had backfired on them. It was creepy, sick and irresponsible. He almost welcomed his sense of indignation. 
For the first time since waking up on the train, he was responding emotionally to something that was not directly related to his own situation, and the respite, though brief, was welcoming. He looked around, almost as if hoping to spot someone in authority he could complain to, as if momentarily forgetting he was alone. His eyes swept across the rows of shops, of which several more, River Island, Envy, Benetton, used mannequins to display the clothes they sold, and as he noticed each of them in turn, his indignation gave way to mounting unease. There was not one mannequin he could see that did not have its face hidden in some way. Most had plastic bags over their heads, though in envy they, whoever they were, the staff presumably, had simply draped articles of clothing over the figures. The sight put Mitra in mind of the parrots whose cages are covered to simulate night and encourage them to sleep. He couldn't for the life of him imagine what the motives of the staff might have been in this instance, unless the gesture was somehow symbolic, or perhaps even a form of black joke. Whatever the reason, the sight of all those smothered heads gave him the creeps. He shuddered and turned his gaze purposely towards the central square. As he did so, noticing that it contained a statue of what appeared to be a figure on horseback, which he thought might be able to give him an indication of where he was, he heard the first sound behind him that he hadn't made himself. It was an odd sound, and brief, like someone liquidly clearing their throat or attempting to gargle with their own phlegm. It was also faint and muffled, as if he had heard it inside a house from several rooms away. He whirled around, but by the time he had spun ninety degrees, all was quiet once more. Nevertheless, he hurried across to the door of River Island, which he had pinpointed in his mind as the source of the sound, and yanked the handle. Finding the door locked, he peered through one of its reinforced glass panels at the store interior. The place was gloomy and apparently deserted. He was about to turn away when yet another mannequin caught his eye. This one was standing at the back of the shop, and like all the others had a plastic bag draped over its head. In this case, however, not only did the bag appear to be clinging tightly to the mannequin's face, but there seemed to be an oval-shaped indentation in the plastic that to Meecher resembled a gaping mouth desperate for air. Recoiling with a cry, Meecher turned away. There was a part of him that instantly wanted to go back, if only to reassure himself that what he had seen had been nothing but the result of shadow play and his own imagination. However, his revulsion was too great and propelled him towards the statue that dominated the central square. As he grew closer to it, he noticed two things almost in unison. One was the presence of a quartet of telephone boxes, all perspex and cold grey steel, on the pavement outside a darkened cafe called Petra's Pantry, and the other was that what appeared to be a hessian sack had been pulled down over the statue's head. At least they left the horse alone, Meecher thought, and felt a sudden urge to giggle. He clapped a hand over his mouth and rushed towards the telephone boxes like a drunken man looking for somewhere to throw up. Wrenching the door open almost pulled his arm out of its socket. He fell inside, snatched up the receiver and rammed it against his ear. The familiar hum of the dialing tone filled him with such joy that he did laugh out loud and was immediately alarmed at how hysterical he sounded. The display screen informed him that there was a minimum call charge of 20 pence. Meecher shoved his left hand into his pocket and felt nothing but lining. Tilting his head to trap the phone between shoulder and ear, he rooted through all his pockets increasingly feverishly with both hands. At some point during his snooze on the train, he must have been robbed because his pockets were empty. Not only did he have no money, he had no wallet, no train tickets, not even a handkerchief. Had he once had a mobile phone? If so, it had gone now. 
He was on the verge of taking out his frustration by smashing the receiver against the smugly indifferent display screen when he remembered that emergency calls were free. Unable to prevent the escape of a triumphant whoop that he found hard to equate to himself, he jabbed thrice at the nine, and was only able to quell his eagerness to do it again by clenching his fist. A phone burred once, then was interrupted by a barely audible click. Meacher was framing his lips to say hello into the expectant pause that followed when the screaming began. It was a child's voice, shrill and bubbling with terror. Its words were running together to form a plea that it seemed would never end. No, Daddy, no! Please, no! Please don't! Daddy, no! Please, no! Meacher slammed the phone into its cradle, then slid, as if boneless, to the floor. He wrapped his arms around his head and began to keen. The child's voice had had a devastating effect on him, not only because it had been distressing to hear, but because it had awakened what felt like a memory he couldn't grasp. He knew the child, he was sure of that, but he couldn't put a name or face to it. He clenched his hands into fists and began to pound on top of his head, punishing his brain for failing to yield its secrets. With each blow, he grew angrier at himself and his situation until his rage reached such a peak that he scrambled to his feet, shoved open the door of the telephone box and charged, teeth bared towards the hooded statue. The base of the statue was a rectangular block of stone, six feet high and inset with panels, each of which contained an elaborate carving of interweaving vines. Meacher threw himself at it, scraping a layer of skin off his arms as he hauled himself up behind the horse and its rider. The statue was slightly larger than life-size, the rider's covered head now eight or ten feet above him. As Meacher placed his left foot on the horse's raised foreleg and grasped a loop of stone rein to heave himself closer to the sack, which he intended to tear from the rider's head in an act of manic defiance, he heard the rattling thump of a door opening on the opposite side of the square. Excited, fearful, and even a little abashed at the prospect of being discovered in such an uncompromising position, Meacher strained to see which of the many doors had opened and who had opened it. However, he hadn't raised himself quite high enough to lift his gaze above the horse's frozen mane, and so had to clamber down from his perch and peer between its motionlessly galloping legs, feeling not unlike a child engaged in a game of hide-and-seek. What he saw bewildered him for no more than a second before cold, harsh fear stabbed at the base of his throat, then cascaded through his body, lodging in his stomach like broken glass. On the far side of the square, the door of a pub, the fleur-de-lis, had opened, and four men had emerged from it. Dressed in jeans and shirts and boots, they looked perfectly normal except for one thing. Like the mannequins in the clothes stores and the stone rider atop its horse, each of them wore a sack-like hood over their head. The two thoughts that spread through Meacher's mind were more like sharp, bright flashes of despair than anything else. The first thought was an instinctive one that Meacher would have found curious had he had time to ponder it. He thought that if only he had removed the sack from the statue's head and placed it over his own, he would have been safe. His second thought was perhaps equally intriguing, but more fundamental. He knew with an absolute conviction that he had to get away before the men caught sight of him. Even as he jumped sprawlingly from the statue's plinth and tried to use its blocky mass to cover his retreat, however, he knew that it was already too late. The men did not cry out, but even through their makeshift hoods, it was obvious that they were aware of his presence. They moved towards him, with a purpose both remorseless and terrifying, and when he began to run, his terror making him feel as if he was wearing lead boots, their pursuit became more purposeful still. The subsequent chase through the unknown town's deserted streets was as serenely terrifying as any nightmare. Meacher's terror made him stumble and stagger and skid. 
Within moments his body was greasy with sweat, which flowed from his hair into his eyes, blinding him. His heart hammered, his lungs toiled, and his breath felt like a length of barbed wire that he couldn't dislodge from his throat. Whenever he glanced back, his pursuers were the same distance behind him, which may have been encouraging if not for the fact that they appeared to be marching rather than running, their movements effortless, machine-like, full of deadly intent. They were toying with him, Meech and you. They were wearing him down prior to closing in for the kill. Meech wished he could see their faces, and yet at the same time dreaded the disclosure of what might be concealed within those sackcloth hoods. In fact, in some ways, the prospect of finding out was what terrified him more than anything else. The streets were growing narrower, danker. Sooner or later he would come to a dead end, and then that would be that. If he couldn't outrun his pursuers, he had to escape them in some other way. The only viable alternative was to evade them for long enough to find a hiding place. At best, that would be a short-term solution, but at least it would give him time to think, to plan his next move. He rounded a corner, his hand slapping the brick to steady himself as he changed direction, and, as though he had willed it to appear, saw an aperture between two buildings on his right, so narrow it could barely even be termed an alleyway. He plunged down it, and was immediately doused in a gloom cold enough to make him feel he was underwater. Above him, the tops of the buildings on either side of the rat run appeared to be craning to touch each other. Certainly, they gave the impression that they were squeezing the thin white stripe of sky that separated them still thinner. So dark did this make the alleyway that from his present position, Meecher couldn't see its end. It was too late to change his mind, though. If he emerged from the alleyway now, his pursuers would be on him in an instant. He began to trot forward, stepping as lightly as he could in the hope that those behind him might plough straight past the slit-like entrance, oblivious. How much could they see through those hoods? How much could they hear? How much could they smell? This last thought came unbidden and disturbed in the most. He thought of sniffer dogs, attuned not to the scent of food or drugs, but to fear. He quickened his pace. Was the alleyway getting narrower still? If he stretched out both his arms like a child pretending to fly, he reckoned he might just be able to touch the buildings on either side. As he passed them, he barely glanced at the individual establishments embedded within the grey stone edifices. On a subconscious level, he registered that each of them was a cramped shop unit, comprising of a door and a narrow display window with a sign above it. However, there was not one that wasn't coated in a layer of dust and grime so thick that it both obscured the name on the sign and made it impossible to tell what the shop sold or once had. This, combined with a deepening murk that felt like Twilight's closing fist, made him fail to notice that one of the shop doors was ajar until it creaked as it widened further. Meech's senses were so attuned to danger that his instinctive leftward spring was balletic. His landing, however, was not so graceful. His ankle turned on the pitted tarmac and he all but shoulder-charged the door opposite the one which had opened. As he fought to regain his senses and his balance, he saw a grey-shrouded figure materialise from the gloom beyond the open door and extend a beckoning hand. The figure's face was concealed within a triangle of shadow so black it seemed impenetrable, but his words were clear enough. "'In here! Quickly! If you don't want them to find you!' Though Meecher hesitated, it still took him less than a second to make up his mind. The boom of his shoulder hitting the door was even now reverberating in the alleyway. In the otherwise total silence, his pursuers would have to be deaf not to have heard it. Scrambling upright, he propelled himself towards the figure, who backed away at his approach. Crossing the threshold felt like passing through a portal between this world and the next. The darkness into which Meecher plunged seemed so profound that for several seconds he was completely disoriented. 
Opening his eyes wide and finding nothing for his vision to latch onto, he flailed with his arms and was rewarded or punished by a crack of pain across the knuckles of his left hand. Undeterred, he groped again for the hard surface he had encountered and found a thin ledge of some kind, possibly a shelf or the edge of a desk. He clung to it, like a shipwrecked man might cling to driftwood, until his eyes had adapted to the sudden absence of light. It took perhaps a minute for the slowly emerging slatted shapes to gain sufficient definition to reveal themselves as books. As soon as they did, he acknowledged that the shop was full of them. Of course, he would have known sooner if he had focused on any sense other than his eyesight, because as soon as he saw the books, he became aware of their musty odour. In other circumstances, he would have found the smell comforting, even homely, although he had hardly read a book since his childhood. Hearing a snick behind him, he whirled but it was only the sound of the catch sliding into place as the shop door closed. So dingy was it, and so effectively did the shop owner blend into his surroundings, that the cowled man's movement from the door to the far side of the room seemed as soundless and insubstantial as a drift of smoke. Thank you, Meecher said, his throat clogged by dust and exertion. The man's only response was a sharp upraising of his left hand. Though it was hard to make him out in the gloom, Meecher could tell by his stance that he was listening. As though deferring to a greater authority, Meecher too remained as still as he could, even though his exhausted body longed to sag. He did his utmost to contain his breath, despite the attempts his racing heart and toiling lungs were making to encourage him to pant and wheeze. The two of them stood for so long that Meecher began to wonder whether the shop owner was once again waiting for him to speak, and he was gathering the courage to do so when the man murmured, "'Alas!' Before Meecher could ask him what was wrong, a pounding on the door invalidated his question. Meecher instinctively scuttled forwards, then ducked, twisting his head to look wildly behind him. Perhaps the most frightening aspect of the blows that seemed to be making the books shiver on the shelves was that they were not urgent but ponderous, relentless, evenly spaced. They sounded more like the pounding of some vast machine piston than human fists on wood. They suggested to Meecher that his pursuers would never give up, that they would hunt him down remorselessly, that in their eyes if they had eyes beneath those hoods. The outcome of the chase was inevitable. Still cowering, he looked from the door to the shop owner, in the same way that a small child would look to a parent for guidance. "'Go up the stairs,' the man murmured, pointing to a shadowy patch of wall between two bookcases that on closer inspection Meecher realised was a door. "'You'll find an unlocked room there. Go inside and lock yourself in.' "'Will I be safe?' Meecher would have asked." if fear had not denied him his voice, and if he had not been so terrified of the answer. He blundered across the room, feeling as though the must and mould of ancient books was lining his lungs like silt, and scrabbled at the dark blot of shadow that was the handle to the door that led upstairs. It opened smoothly, devoid of the creak he was expecting. He caught a glimpse of the stairs, little more than bands of differently huge shadow, before the door clicked shut behind him, taking the last vestige of light with it. A part of him welcomed the blackness, he wished he could curl up and close his eyes and lose himself in its folds. It was almost with reluctance that he forced himself on, edging forwards until his toe-end connected with the bottom stair. He began to climb, his body now incredibly wary, his joints grinding with glassy pain. He tried not to wonder where this would end, whether, by some miracle, he would escape the clutches of his pursuers, recover his memory and find his way home. Without knowing why, he had become a fugitive and the purpose of a fugitive was to run, and to keep running, until he either got away or was caught. Maybe his newfound ally would help him, 
Maybe, when Meech's pursuers had gone, the two of them would sit down together and the shop owner would answer all of his questions. Meech couldn't hear anything from downstairs, couldn't even hear the pounding. Was the shop owner talking to his pursuers at this moment, or had they simply moved on? Had they knocked on the shop door not because they had known he was inside, but because they were knocking on every door, hoping to rouse and question the occupants, or simply to frighten him into bolting from wherever he might have chosen to hide? He knew he had reached the upper landing only when his raised right foot failed to encounter another stair. He settled it gently next to his left, and used his arms as antennae to probe the way ahead. Encountering no resistance, he shuffled forwards, the soles of his feet scraping along a surface that felt like rough, gritty wood. After a few steps... He moved to his right, and within a few seconds encountered a wall of what seemed to be cold and even plaster. Feeling his way along, it only took him several seconds more to locate a door. His hands slithered over it until one of them found a knob, which he twisted in both directions several times, before Meech concluded that it was locked. What was it the shop owner had said? Go upstairs and into the unlocked room? Something like that. Which meant, presumably, that of several rooms up here, only one was unlocked. He simply had to find it, and that was all. Simply had to be methodical. Rather than move across to the other side of the landing, he decided to feel his way to the next door on this side. Then there would be no chance of missing one. Blinking into the darkness and finding it unchanging, he probed the way cautiously forwards with his feet, and almost immediately his left palm, caressing the wall, bumped against the jutting side of a second door frame. Even without his sight, his hand moved unerringly to the doorknob, and this time, with barely a twist, the door opened. Meecher stepped inside and quietly closed it behind him. Remembering what the shop owner had said about locking himself in, his searching fingers found a key, which rewarded him with a satisfying click when he twisted it clockwise. Turning to face the room, he realised that it was not as dark as he had first thought. The faint brownish illumination was provided by a meagre spill of light through a small window coated in grime and dust. Though the light was barely managing to establish itself, Meecher could just make out a bed with rumpled bedclothes and a tall, blocky wardrobe. He did not notice the child, however, until it started whispering. His head twisted so sharply that a hot thread of pain flared in his neck. The child was standing so closely to the wall furthest away from the door that until he focused on it fully, it resembled nothing so much as a particular fall of shadow or an uneven patch of plaster. Thinking that his fumblings at the door may have caused the child to scuttle across the room and press itself against the wall in fear, Meecher moved close to reassure it, more out of fear that it would give him away than because of a genuine urge to offer it comfort. However, he had taken no more than four steps towards it when he stopped. He had assumed the whispering to be a prayer or an attempt by a child to find its voice, but now that he was close enough to hear it clearly, he realised it was neither. What the child was whispering were the words that it, or some other child, had wailed in abject terror down the phone in the square at him. No, Daddy, no, Daddy, please, no, please, don't, Daddy, stop, no, please, no, no. It was as though, by repeating the words, the child was giving them the power of an incantation, was mocking or damning him with them. Meecher felt anger, or more than anger, boiling inside him, and he took two further steps across the room. It was only at this point, some six or eight feet from the child, that the scant light finally enabled him to make out particular details that had been denied him from further away. It was these details that caused the strength to drain from his legs so abruptly that he thumped forwards onto his knees. The child did not have its back to the wall at all. It was facing the wall, presenting its back almost insolently to him. Furthermore, like the mannequins, like his pursuers, like the statue in the square, it was wearing a bag over its head. It was the sight of the bag, black plastic wound round with masking tape, 
that triggered the memories in Meech's mind. Now, finally, he was beginning to realise why he was here. He held out his hands in supplication. I'm sorry, he whispered. I'm so sorry. Please, have mercy. Slowly, the child turned to face him. No, Daddy, no, Daddy, please don't, please stop, Daddy, no, please, no, it whispered. As though relishing the moment, the child raised its hands, its fingertips resting on the black plastic, making it crackle. Then, still whispering, it hooked its fingers into the plastic and began to tear the bag from its face. If you know the psychological thriller Fiddleback by one J.M. Morris, please know that that is also Mark Morris. Mark was born in 1963 in Bolsover, Derbyshire, England. He is best known for his horror novels, although, as mentioned, he's done several Doctor Who and Torchwood tie-ins. He lives in Tadcaster, North Yorkshire, with his wife, the artist Nell Watmore. Mark, by the way, is also the editor of the highly acclaimed book Cinema Macabre, a collection of 50 horror movie essays by genuine luminaries in the field. Cinema Macabre won Mark the 2007 British Fantasy Award. And why not? It includes articles by, this is a long list, but I'm not going to give it all to you, Simon Clark, Neil Gaiman, Kim Newman, Elizabeth Hand, Tim LeBon, Keelan Patrick Burke, China Mievel, Peter Crowther, Graham Joyce, Ramsey Campbell, and the beat goes on. And thanks again for a grand story, Mark. Come back soon. You know, I, I love tales that leave you haunted and not knowing the full-out why of the world. While horror is a way of facing our fears, there is nothing to say that everything horrific must be resolved. At the core of it, life is a mystery, and so, too, is much of what happens to us. Thanks, Mark. And thank you, Richie Smith, for narrating both tales tonight. Richie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E, was born in 1980, and, poor lad, says it's been pretty much downhill ever since. With further prodding, excuse the expression, Richie reveals that he has spent much of his time in a basement laboratory doing things he cannot or will not talk about. He also recently moved all the books in a library in Oxford three feet to the right. Hmm. Perpetually threadbare and rumbled, he says, he currently lives in Old Trafford with his pet salamander and his death metal vocalist partner. And he says his point coal is absolutely fine. And so you... Gosslings can follow him on Twitter at, at Narenschiff, should you be interested in that sort of thing. And that is N-A-R-R-E-N-S-C-H-I-F-F, -F, at Narenschiff. And it means, you know what it means. Sure you do. So, that is show 27. Tales to Terrify, now beginning a second half-year of service to all the children of the night. So, oh, that's right. As Steve Jobs used to say, one more thing. Beginning next week, Tales to Terrify 
will become part of a network, the District of Wonders Network. Nothing will change here, but beginning on the 16th of July, I believe it's the 16th of July, two more podcasts will join us and our grandmother cast, the Starship Sofa. They are Protecting Project Pulp and Crime City Central. Do I need to tell you more? Nah. Look for more information. It's at www.districtofwonders.com. Remember, everybody has a story. Come, find yours. And that will be that for this week, fellow night children. I won't crow about the coolness of the nook this week. Don't want to tempt fate's evil thugs. Yes, the temps are back up into the hot range in Chicago, so if you'll just quietly slip out the door and down the rickety stairs to the street, I'm sure your homeward journey will be swift and uneventful, albeit dark. And perhaps our air conditioner won't notice your absence. Remember, stop by the Tales to Terrify website from time to time, broach the forum, let us know what you think, what you like, what you need— and that's that. Next week, well, I don't know. Next week will be utterly different. So you'll find out when you get here. Now, off with you. Don't think too much about the dark side of human nature tonight. Just know that you survived both tales and that you'll be up and about tomorrow after what I know will be this night's pleasant dreams. Hmm? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.